Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode doesn't have a name yet. I'll figure one out later on, but it's a very important episode because we have two guests on the show tonight to talk about their story and the story of their three-year-old daughter. This is Jared Jones and Ashley Jones who are coming to us direct from the parking lot. In at their at their place of business, Jared and Ashley Jones, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. And I understand that the reason you're in the car, as opposed to being at your computer in probably the warmer office, is because there was a problem with the code on the entry lock. Is that right? <laughs> That's correct. Okay, but these people are troopers, and we're going to do this anyway from their car. Uh, technology is amazing. The first thing I want to do tonight is to synopsize the basic elements of the lawsuit that the Jones have filed against certain individuals in Southern California. This parking lot and the lawsuit are both in Southern California. They live in Riverside, California. And here's what happened, okay? Because there's a lawsuit that has been filed by the Jones. It was filed back in November of 2021 against certain parties there in Southern California. And I'll recap that here in a second. And then as of August of this year, 2023, circumstances developed such and information came forth such that they added the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a defendant in this civil suit. So the nutshells of it, the nutshell of it is that back at a party in December of 2020. So three years ago, I'm recording this on December 9th, 2023, and this party was back in December of 2020. It was actually December 22nd of 2020. At their home, at the home of the Jones, they were having some friends over. They have children as well. And the friends brought children over, and it's a Christmas time get together, and they'll explain a little bit of the background of that, but you know, you have friends over, right? And so they have a certain friend who's a member of the bishopric in their ward. And he came over with his wife, with their kids, and specifically with their 12-year-old son. Now, the Jones at the time have children, one of whom is a three-year-old daughter. And the kids went off into another room to play. During the course of the play, the 12-year-old son of the bishopric member began wrestling with the three-year-old daughter of the Jones and used the opportunity to touch her in her private parts. This is something that was not known at the time by the Jones, but circumstances developed where they found out about it. And they're gonna describe what those circumstances are. They're gonna find out that not only is this, this isn't just an allegation by a three-year-old, this is actually something that the 12-year-old boy admitted to. And as time goes on, the Jones, make the horrifying discovery, not only that this has happened to their daughter, but that this 12-year-old boy had acted out sexually prior to this incident on several occasions. And their parents and others in the church knew about it and did not tell the Jones about it or take any steps that would be reasonable in order to prevent it from happening happening again at their home at this party 
on this evening in December of 2020. Do I have that about right so far, Jared and Ashley? More or less. Pretty close. Okay. Well, that's pretty good for me. So yeah. can you tell us now, I know this happens. You have no idea it happens when it happens. So what is the first <laughs> thing? Uh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's the first thing that happens? Uh, if you want to describe anything that happens at the party more, that's fine. And But the, please lead into the uh, the answer to how it happens that you become aware that anything happened at the party between the 12 year old and your three year old daughter. Well, I will clarify there was a party the night before, like a ward, kind of like a ward. It was our family party, but the ward members were there. So we don't know about anything happening that night. It was the next day that this boy came over with a friend of a friend of our kid. So his parents were not there at the time. Okay. But he had been there at the party the night before. Yes. All right. right. And you had no notice of any problems with this 12-year-old boy? No. No. However, we will say that in the course of the next couple months, um, they did find out that their son was an abuser and had committed, when it was when that kind of all got found out, they had committed the parents of the first victim that was known that their son would not be out of their supervision ever, like, and around children. Kind of an exchange for not doing anything about it, like calling the police or anything. They just promised the victim's family, the first victim, that they would just keep him home. They'll figure it out themselves. Don't tell anybody. We'll keep him, we'll keep him around, not around anybody, basically. And for me to be clear on this, this is something that you are finding out about after the incident with your yeah. daughter, but that had occurred prior to the incident with your daughter. Is that right? Well, he had been abusing that other victim for, it turns out, at least over a year or two before this. Okay. So she it was known forward. about before the incident at your home? We don't know how much everyone knew, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so the before... Before the first incident in our home, um, we don't know that they knew it then. We believe that they do based on a whole bunch of different evidence that um, we've been made aware of. At the same time, we know, like it's documented, that from the, I guess what I was leading into is that from the time that they knew about this first victim, and they said that they would not allow anybody to, or that they wouldn't allow their child to be around other children unsupervised. Um, they dropped him off at our house again. So yeah, that would have been January of twenty one. We we a few the members of the board found yeah a few members of the board found out that something had happened with another child. Just kind of rumors though. No one you know they didn't want anyone to really know about it. And then. Someone tipped me off at church one day and um, he said, hey, just be careful with your daughter around this boy because there's rumors that he's been doing some stuff, you know? And then the next day, he ends up at my house with another kid. And yeah, and so- Was that in January? Or are you talking about the date in December of 2020? No, this is but January. This is afterwards. So this is in January right. after the first confession had come out that he had molested another child. We had no idea anything about our own child yet. Here's what's going to be the easiest thing, I think, for the audience to understand. 
First off, we all, I think, already understand that you're both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you have been for a long time, and that this involves people who are members of the church within your ward, within your stake, many of the leaders of which you, uh, you know, and some of which you're close friends with. The reason I'm drilling down about uh, what it was that you, or excuse me, what it was that this 12-year-old's parents knew, and when they knew it is because that's obviously a critical component of your lawsuit. In other words, it's one thing for parents to have no idea that anything's going on with their kid. And you know, you bring your kid over to somebody's house and they come over there later and they act out in some way like this. Well, that's a level of responsibility where you can't really blame the parents if they didn't know in advance that there was a problem with this child and this child, this 12 year old needed to be supervised and perhaps the parents told of any other children when he's coming over to visit. The degree to which the parents of this 12-year-old knew about the issues regarding their son prior to this December 2020 incident with your daughter is obviously very pivotal to your case. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that our case is a little bit more nuanced than that just because, um, you know, going through depositions, what was found is that there were no procedures and no policies in, in place to protect from abusers like this. And I think that's more to the heart of um, where we're going with this. Mm -hmm. um, and then also after it was known that this child was an abuser, regardless of whether we can prove or not um, that he did anything after that date, what he did do um, is he had unrestricted access to children without, um, you know, yeah, without supervision. And so we don't actually know well, what did happen. So we found out the first week of March. We found out because his dad called Jared. Of 2021. Yes. Right. Now, here's another thing that's going to be difficult because there's two timelines that are running parallel in this story. And the first timeline is what you found out and when you found out about it. The second yep. thing, the second timeline is what really happened chrono chronologically. In other words, what it is that was happening, even though you didn't know about it at the time that it was happening. And I think it will be easiest for the audience if we go through the chronological steps as opposed to, this is what I found out, and I found out at this point that this had happened way back then, and then later on I found out from this person that this had happened way back when. It's very difficult to construct a timeline with an interview yeah. like that. So if you could, just go ahead and understand that we know that, first off, uh, this incident happened because the 12-year-old confessed to it. It's not about an allegation from a three-year-old or anybody else. This is actually confessed to, together with other incidents. If you can just take us through the chronology of what happened that you know now happened. So you can take it leading up to December of 2020 and what you know about what the parents or the church knew about this 12-year-old prior to that. Well, so initially everyone found out because a seven-year-old girl, um, oh, I can't think of, he'd been molesting a seven-year-old girl who was his best friend's sister for it turns out at least a year or two before anyone found out about anything and then he also confessed that in september of 2020 he touched a little boy 
and I would as well, a three-year-old boy. Okay, That's and that was before... three months in advance of the party. So at yes. least two in, two other victims. Right. And one over a period of about a year. Yeah, or yeah, or longer. We don't know exactly how long. All right. Um. So then, in January, he ended up confessing to his parents because he thought he was caught. Go ahead and tell that story, if you would, because I know Jared told it to me yesterday. It's interesting how this got disclosed, and in this case, it was a bit of an accident. I mean, it's a good thing it got disclosed, but go ahead and tell us that story. Yeah, so what happened is um, he was over at his friend's house and playing on the computer, and he typed bitch in uh, on the computer, and the his mom's friend... I was upset about that. And so, or his friend's mom was upset about that. So she called his mom and just said, Hey, uh, it's not a huge deal, but um, I appreciate it. You know, if you would talk to him so he doesn't do that again. And so mom and dad, you know, sit down with their son and say, Hey, um, I got a call from so-and-so today. And uh said that that something bad happened or something to that do effect you have anything you want to tell me yeah do you have anything that you want to tell me and so um at that point he confessed and he told them uh that he had touched this child on their uh chest and on their bottom like his little sister yeah his friend's little sister his friend's little sister on their chest and their bottom which is your daughter and, yeah which is yeah and so, and then that just kind of um, devolved over a period of a couple months where, you know, as they started going to therapy more and more. Now, who's uh, going to therapy? The boy is going to therapy? No, the little girl, the first victim, the seven-year-old girl. All right, thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> but more and more information starts coming out. Um, and the bishop at that point did know about it yep. and stake president. They're did or did not? They did, yes. Yep. And over that time, he was still coming to mutual. And there was during COVID. So we had mutual law at our house. We had church at our house at that time. Um, and so he was there, you know, no one knew anything. Um, we ended up going back to church in person. And he sat in front of us after he had abused our daughter. The bishop knew that. Um, but well, you don't know that. We did not know that yet. And so to to be clear, when Ashley says that we were having church at our house, this is not home church like where um, we're digitally meeting. Yeah, this is the whole word. The whole word. Yeah, the whole word came to our house because we've got a large space to be able to do that. Outdoors. So he was running around our backyard with little kids and no one was told anything. No one was watching him. And, and one of the things that I think is important um, to this as well is many many people have been like oh well nothing happened at the church okay cool um we can't prove that we did get um we got a couple letters um in i don't know shoot september of two years ago it was a, now, it was a few months after this stuff happened yeah that, that were anonymous letters um you know, and once again, anonymous, okay, fine, but they were very specific and they named victims. And so victims the letter that was not, we're not confessed to. 
Correct. The victims that were not confessed to and so these are anonymous and, letters letting you know that there are more victims out there of this 12-year-old boy. Yes. Yeah, and not just that though, but that it happened after church at our house. We have what's called a pump track. It's like a little BMX track um at our house. And so they said, you know, uh something to the effect of behind the pump track. Um and they named like kids in our ward. Yeah, a one a one year old and a three year old that he had stuck his hands down their pants. Um but all these things happened after the church, you know, leaders knew about it and didn't and didn't do anything. They just let him come and Okay, so let's do this timeline now. When is it that you know the church leaders, and by that the bishop and the state president, knew about this 12-year-old boy and his proclivities? Mid-January 21? No, it was the day after uh, the dad called me. Yeah, it was in January. Oh, well, the first victim they knew in January. Right. About our child and the other one, at least a couple weeks before we found out in March. Yeah, so we knew in March, the day after we found, or two days after we found out about it, I found out about it on Friday night, and we didn't put all the pieces together on this until um, Saturday night. I had 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 a feeling, there's a family that lives down the street from them, that also is close with them, and I had messaged her like, hey, do you know about what happened? Like, we just got a call from the dad, and she's like, oh, my gosh, can we call you? And they had gotten the same call from the dad. Okay, so let's start with finding out how it happens. And when I say start, I mean this part of the story. How is it that you find out it happens? We've heard how it got disclosed by the 12-year-old accidentally to his mom, where she's angling about his typing bitch into the search function of his friend's computer, but she doesn't say that expressly, and he comes out and admits to sexually abusing your daughter. Tell me how you find out about that and what that was like. So that portion of it actually was when he first came out and talked about the first victim. So from that point, um, the police got involved a couple months or weeks later or something like that and were sitting down interviewing him um the police only got called though because they were not keeping him away from other kids the first victim's family found out that they were not being safe with him so then they finally ended up calling the police and they got involved that's one with the seven-year-old girl uh, who was abused for a period of about a year yeah yeah okay and so as that's going down they figure out um he confesses yeah well so the police figure out that um he has abused our child and this other child like he confesses to those as well um and so when that happens i get a call from dad on a friday night and we had a big party that was about to go down at our house um and you know we were just running around and so dad's conversation with me was very pointed um and like his his intent was clear it didn't become that clear until after um but basically he's like look hey this thing happened you know uh my son touched your daughter on uh, over her clothes on her vagina um and while he was wrestling and he feels really bad and you know i'm sure that you're aware of this other incident 
and this family has been trying to make our family's life hell and they just don't want any trouble they're like we we love you guys so much and we don't want to do anything to ruin our friendship but we really just want uh our son to be able to take the sacrament yeah yeah like really to to be able to get right with god so that he can he literally did say on there so that he can like continue to form perform his priesthood functions like like pass the sacrament yeah he wants him to be able to pass the sacrament and like that's the kind of shit that he's saying to me like on this phone call and how how this other family is considering um litigation against them and it's been really hard for his family and they feel so bad and so you know at the time when he's talking to me I'm like oh man yeah that must be so hard I'm not even thinking it worked. um yeah about what he was delivering to me mm -hmm. and so um so we so the next day was sunday saturday well the saturday sunday was coming up and that day when we were starting to get ready for church, you know, I was kind of thinking, hey, like he shouldn't be at church. Like there's victims we know in this ward, like they shouldn't have to see him at church today. Like, and Jared had called the bishop and state president and turns out they didn't care. <laughs> they weren't gonna do anything about it. <laughs> well, I think they were on the same page with mom and dad. And, and that is the dangerous part of the church is when you have the people that are calling the shots that have a vested interest, um, not only from a perspective of making everybody feel warm and fuzzy, but also in making, so meaning the members of the ward, but then also wanting to make sure the best thing happens for this boy. And it was said so many times, like, um, should one little mistake ruin his, the rest of his life? Like, um, yes. Well, they're all best, best friends, all yeah. these families. Not us, the, the Bishop Break Stake President and the, the perpetrator's family. But huge conflict of interest. Yeah. Like, um, the people that were calling the shots here, besides Kirtan and McConkie, right? The people that were calling the shots wanted the best thing for that boy. That's what they wanted. They did not like, they did not care about the victims. They can say that they did. They can talk about how they feel so bad for whatever. But the reality is the most important thing to them throughout this entire process was making sure that he was able to be forgiven and get back on the right track. Like that was the goal. And the father of the 12 year old, he is a member of the Bishop Rick of your ward. He was, yeah, at the time. At the time, he was a member of the bishopric, okay. Yeah, it strikes me, and it has struck me for a long time as a member of the LDS Church, that a premium is placed on acting like everything is okay. And the idea seems to be played out that if we act like everything is okay, then everything is okay, which right. tends to lead to ignoring bad things, sweeping them under the carpet in order to pretend that everything's okay. Yeah. So he's still going to church. We've got well, the, the that morning we did put enough pressure. You know, I was in the primary presidency at the time and I had told them about it. That was the first week we were going back to primary classes after COVID. 
and we did not feel comfortable. People don't watch their kids when they're going to primary. And we're like, we don't feel comfortable unless you do something about this, having primary today. So we kind of said, hey, we're not going to have primary today if you guys don't figure this out. And so eventually they did put enough pressure that the dad just didn't bring him. And that's how that ended up. Yeah. What they was that like, Jared? I'm sorry, Jared and Ashley, what was that like? So you find out on a Friday or Saturday anyway, a couple of days before Sunday. Sunday is going to be the first day you're all back at church. You now get the phone call from the 12-year-old's dad explaining what happened and saying what you described him as saying. Then you get a chance to think about it because I know you're running around getting ready for the party. You have a chance to process it and tell us about that too. And then what steps you took when you realized that there's a 12-year-old who's going to be at church Sunday who really, really should not be alone with children. Or their victims shouldn't see him. Like, they don't need to see him at church. Right, like, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, at 8 a.m. Uh, on that Sunday morning, like, I waited I waited at that time. I, I'm not disrespectful anymore. Um, but I waited till 8 a.m. to call right. the bishop. You know, I'm like, hey, it's this is an appropriate time. So I did. And Jared, I'm sorry, you're the elders quorum president, correct? I am. I'm the elders quorum president at the time. Um, and uh, when I get on the phone with them, I tell them like, hey, I'm sure that you're aware of this thing. And he's like, well, um, what is it that I'm aware of? You know, he didn't and, want to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's like, you can tell me. And then so, you know, we go through this little game. I'm like, yeah, I got a call from so and so. And your counselor. They, yeah, your counselor. And they told me that their son had molested my daughter like that one. And he's like, oh, okay, yes, I'm aware of that. You know, and I'm like, you know, it's, so I told him, I was like, I understand um, that you are in a weird position here. However, this child needs to not be attending our ward. Like, that's not appropriate. And he's like, I'm so sorry, but. Um, we can't know, tell people we can't come to church. <laughs> we can't come to church. Yeah, we can't tell people that they can't come to church. Mm -hmm. And so. I said, well, Bishop, I know that you know that that is false. And he he's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I know that because you got physically threatened that somebody was going to beat you up, uh, that you had a persona non grata served. Um, and that person is no longer allowed on the grounds of the church. Well, and we would call since a trespass then, order. Yeah, no trespass order. Yep. And so... Um, and also, since that time, as the elders quorum, it's been my responsibility to make sure that we had one guy on each door of the building to make sure that this guy didn't come in and beat you up. You know? And so, in what, anyways. So it's like, you know this kid has already molested kids from your ward right now. They're come. Yeah, it's right. not a threat, right? Like, there's multiple victims sitting in your congregation and you're telling me that you can't tell him not to come? I was like, that's BS. And I said, by the way, what does coming to church have to do with this child's salvation? Like, I know at that time, I was totally TBM, right? Like, true believing all the way. And so I, I do care about everybody's salvation. Um, and I'm like, 
but still he can get his salvation from zoom <laughs> at the time only a few people oh right this is the first time you're going back to church after two years basically yeah yeah, yeah. so obviously it's it's not that big a deal like just let him roll up on zoom it'll be fine um and so he he said that he couldn't year. do that um then we we go to church he doesn't show up because um there's been enough attention well, and shame. Sure his parents don't want to be embarrassed by having him there like at that time with yeah for sure so so he in, never came back to that word correct they in, moved into a new word can i stop you just for a second i know that uh, now you got two people uh jumping in here jared so try and keep your your train of thought where you are and i'll bring you back to it but i've got to say that at more mormonism live we have had more than one story of adults who go to church, who get up in fast and testimony meeting and say something that the bishop does not like or approve of, and then getting no trespassed from the church, mm -hmm. receiving an order from Curtin McConkie. And I can understand why a bishop would not want someone up there saying, things that he doesn't think they should be saying during fast and testimony meeting. I think we can all understand that. On the other hand, he's not molesting kids. And he gets trespassed just for talking in sacrament meeting and saying things the bishop doesn't like. But here you've got an individual, even though he's 12, who has victims, the bishop knows there's victims, and yet he's been coming to church or they, the bishop had no problem with his coming to church until you pushed the issue. Is that right? Well, in the and here's the crazy part too is that throughout the next five to six months, uh, whatever what August is, yeah. yeah, whatever. So, anyways, five months. Um, there was consistent pressure given to us to, to allow them to come back. To allow them to come back to our ward. Are you like sure what? it's okay now? Can they come back? Who was who was doing this and what were they saying? All of them. Bishop. All. The bishop, the stake president, like um we got so much shit from people in the ward, like with little passive aggressive comments to our kids, testimonies, like all of the things used to tell us that we needed to forgive. And we did end up moving our records to another ward eventually because it was just too much for our kids and stuff. Yeah. Sure. So you moved to and another so, ward, and that's how you dealt with the issue? Uh, eventually. So that was... in, in August of that year, we we finally got um, the church, like, higher up to, um, like, make it so he was not coming back to our ward ever. Like, they moved his whole family's records to another ward mistake. Well, in moving the family's records was something that the stake president could do, but there was a restriction um, placed on him that he could not return to our ward. Now, I haven't seen anything in writing. I was just told that. And the by wards whom? and stakes have changed since then, so who knows what. Oh, right. uh, by the stake president. But that being said, like, our our issue with that was the only way that we were able to get them to make that concession is through coercion. Like essentially we put pressure on them and said, look, that's fine. You guys aren't going to do it. We are going to, we're going to make a campaign. Like we are going to let everybody in the whole world know exactly what's going on. Well, I had made a social media post too early on 
because they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. Okay, so Ashley, what do you think the leadership in the Warden State should have been doing? And then tell us about your media post to address that. Um, I'm trying to think how that started. I mean, what did you think they should have been on. doing? Well, they wouldn't call and report the new victims to like the police. Like they're supposed to report that. They never reported at all mm. early on. The, um, the counselor had for the first victim, but the church wouldn't do that. And in our area, the there is penitent privilege. Um, however, the way that, and, and by the way, in the lawsuit, the church is not claiming penitent privilege. Like, so that yeah, is- they're specifically saying we're not going to invoke it. Yes, correct. Yeah, I read and it. So it, which is, which makes sense because the way that they found out about it was through the dad. And if you find out through the dad, not through the child, like Wasn't it wasn't a confession. Right. And so that being said, they had an obligation to report. They did not report. It took them 71 days. And I, I even knew at that point, like everyone else had reported. I told them, Hey, will you make me feel better? Show me that you want, you want to do what's right. And they just were so stubborn about it. And it was like, they were so obnoxious and they're like, Jared, tell your woman to like, stop bugging us or whatever. And so they wouldn't do it. Now I take it that first off the 71 days is from early January to later in March. Is that right? No, it was from March for ours, our child. So it was like, what, probably April, May. It was late May or early June that they reported. Okay. So from March to May or early June that they reported it to the police. Yeah. And, and I will say like lots of people have also brought this to our attention. They're like, well, you know, what does it matter if the, if the police already knew about what had been reported? Like, why does it even matter if they reported or not? And there's multiple facets to why that's important. But the first and foremost in my mind is when dad calls and he's the one that reports on this or a counselor is the one that reports, there is context and texture that they bring to that themselves. Um, you know, that may be nuanced, that may be- um, Soft sell. Soft sell, like whatever. And each piece of evidence that comes forward gives new detail and makes a difference in piecing together what actually most likely slash probably happened. And so there's a reason that each person that becomes aware of this that is a mandated reporter needs to share what they know. And so that is very, very important. And then secondly, is acknowledging that it is an obligation that we have is a society to protect the most vulnerable. Like there is an obligation. It's a social contract that we have. And there's a reason there are laws that surround this. Um, and so it's very important to me. I, you know, um, one of your colleagues made a post on Reddit yesterday um, about uh, mandated reporting and how uh, he's changed his mind on it. Like, oh, right. it, yeah. And um, 
one of the things that's not brought up in this lawsuit, but that is very important to our story is that I was abused when I was a child um, by someone who was about to leave on a mission in the next couple of years. And my parents found out about it in the hallway after his farewell. Um, and so like just horrible timing, like the, the whole thing sucked. Nobody reported on my behalf, nobody did anything. And I do not know how many other victims there were. I know that my brother and I were a victim of this guy. However, in, in that statement uh, that your colleague made, like what it doesn't do is it doesn't give allowance to the fact that yes, a certain percentage of people may say that like mandated reporting was harmful to them, right? Like that it made their life worse. Okay, cool, except for like, it can be protecting future victims. That's a big deal, right? There can be false reports. That's okay. Like, uh, Ashley and I have been a victim. I think we got swatted, um, you know, here. I mean, that's not the real word for it because it wasn't a SWAT we team. We think someone showed. involved in this case called CPS on us just to make a dumb false report. Yeah, but <laughs> you know what? It was okay because they came to our house, they, they did, they talked to our kids, they did an investigation, everything was okay. False reports are fine. Like, I'm not saying it's a cool thing to do, but I am saying that the way that the legal system works, they don't just come in and take your kids. That's not real. And so like, and then the last part of that is, so you can protect future victims, like the argument surrounding false reporting, whatever. But then the last thing that I think is really, really important is the morality surrounding that thing. Like the bishop should not have to walk around carrying um, that guilt, knowing that somebody else is getting abused and that nothing's happening about it. He can't do anything. <laughs> Slash uh, also like they as a good human being, they need to do anything that they can do to stop that victimization. And so I don't care. I, I could care less uh, if the church gets sued. Like in this case that came up this last week surrounding the lady in Idaho, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that was said about that um was that uh when they went for the penitent like trying to force the bishop to talk right like um they said that unless this person releases me um then i can't testify um bullshit. you can you're just concerned about getting sued and he expressed that he expressed that he was concerned about getting sued but my question from a morality standpoint is what juries out there convicting people for violating penitent privilege? Like, and the church has enough money to cover is that a thing? Lawsuit yeah, right. And, and just so you know, when it's when we're talking about the privilege about the testimony at trial, not the reporting, okay? Yeah, the, he's never going to take the stand, he doesn't get to go in there and just testify about it. The judge will not allow him to if the defendant invokes that privilege. But I hear what you're saying about the reporting requirement. I don't want to get sidetracked from your story, which is very, very important. It's the main reason I want you here. 
I, yeah. I do want to give you the chance to express yourself and hopefully you've been able to do that. But there's a really important part of the story that I don't want to miss, which has yeah. to do with what you'd said about this young 12 year old who doesn't show up at church and he doesn't go to church in your ward thereafter, but he does go to church. Isn't that correct? And there was a meeting and yes. that part of the story, which I think is very important. Yeah, and honestly, I think that's one of the, the cruxes of the lawsuit, right? To show the intent of the church. Yeah, so he moves to a new ward. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the new ward that he moves to is the largest primary in the state. And they, lots of the parents already have concerns about him coming to their ward. There's a, I mean, lots of people know us. They know general what's going on. They don't want, why would they bring this kid to our ward? And so, um, Bishop and state president are aware of all the uncomfortable things. And so, <laughs> what they do is they invite the area authority, which, by the way, like in the last 10 years, I've seen area authorities in our congregations like once or twice. Like, it's just not a normal thing. Like, right. that's that's weird in itself, right? Who is the area authority? Yeah, so you know through who, their ward Sunday school. Do you know who that yeah, is? Yeah, and oh, at the time it Jeff was, Rosa is who it was. Okay. Yeah. Was so Jeff Rosa attends. By the way, he's a new area authority, so he has very little information yeah, Elder, on this. Elder Miskin, we dealt with before, and he was very nice, and then turned his back on us and sent a whole letter email to the ward. So, <laughs> okay, hang on a second. Hang on. I, we, we need to go back and talk about that. Okay. Oh, that's Tell us what you did and what the friction was, because I understand you wanted people in the ward to know so they could check with their kids. Number one, see if they've been victims. Number two, protect their kids so they don't become yeah. future victims. And yet you were running into resistance on that. Please tell us that part. That's of the true. Story. After I made that social media post, um, Elder Miskin had sent an email to our entire ward. And tell them what the post said. Well, my post just said that, like, we had found out something had happened and that local law enforcement and everybody was so nice to us, like CPS. They were so nice to us, so nice to our kids. They did whatever we could. And um, but I said, well, you know, the church leaders have been terrible to us. Like, they've been victimizing us. They won't do anything to protect anybody else. They won't call on a report. I mean, it was pretty straightforward, like, and so like a week later, there's an email that goes out to everybody in the ward. And so most people in the ward that don't have kids don't know about this, but they sent this, you know, to 500 people in the ward that people who haven't been to church in years. So now everybody knows about it. And it was saying like, there's some reports that we are not doing the right thing, not reporting. These are all false. Anyone saying this is false. Um, it was pretty harsh. Like it was very pointed at me and the other the victims' families. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was calling Ashley a liar. And okay. so um at this point, like there's fight or flight and I'm fight in this scenario. And he had he had emailed everybody, um what's not CC. Yeah, so he did not CC anybody. There was no BCC. Like it was literally, well, no, he CC'd everybody, not BCC. So anybody could have replied to that email and would have gone, it would have gone to everybody on the whole world. Just hit reply all. And some people yeah. must have, did they? Yes. Of course they do. Because if you're blanketing a bunch of people, there's going to be some people who are going to hit reply all every time. Well, intentionally. Like, and well, so. Jared had said, if you don't fix this email in 24 hours, I'm going to reply all and tell them exactly what's going on. 
Yeah. Ooh. And, you know, as I'm going through this process, um, you know, it's so funny now that I look back at it. Like, we we say that we're not respecters of person. Um, yes, we definitely were respecters of people. Um, and so saying something like pushing back or negative to my area 70 was not comfortable for me. Right. But I was like, no, this is bullshit. Like and I am. The, the other victims, the other little boy victims, his dad was not so gentle and he replied back and he said, hey, your leaders are telling you things that are false in the email. <laughs> so you, he hit reply all, right? Otherwise, and then the you wouldn't president have seen replied, it. The state president replied back saying, I'm sorry that you feel this way, basically, you know. And, and the state president hit back reply all? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So this huge drama now yes. plays out in front of all the members of the board, including well, the ones who haven't been to church in ages. Yes. And then there's people that reply that are like, hey, what I don't know why I'm on this email. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. Eventually, he did send out an email retracting retracting it a little bit. It was enough. We took it and let it go. Well, okay. We took the little the little crumbs <laughs> so was, at the time. That was Elder Miskin, who's not. He was the authority at the time. So then he got released in the middle of this, and Elder Rosa becomes the new person. So he was there at the beginning. And by the way, when we sat down with Elder Miskin like two weeks into this, um, he sat us down and he's like, "Hey, you know, I." I want to let you know that I understand what this feels like. He's like, when um, when my daughter was younger, uh, she was molested by a guy in our ward. And it was very difficult for me, um, and I wasn't able to forgive for a long time. I would get angry every time I saw him at church. Like, he's going through this whole thing. But the narrative was like, but I was holy enough that so eventually... nothing happened. He didn't do anything. Yeah, so... Like, that was a terrible story to tell us. Right, the story <laughs> is that the fault was with me for not being able to forgive him for so long. And what is yes. this about getting angry every time he sees him at church? Yes. Yeah. And he said that while his daughter was on her mission, that she had some dreams or something that made her remember it. And so uh, she called him up and asked if that had happened. Um, so she and, didn't even know about it. Like nothing ever happens. Like why are you telling us the story? Like this is ridiculous. Don't tell us this. <laughs> like. And so um, after after that's the case, he's like, yeah, this did happen, and she was upset, and but she was able to heal. That that was the narrative of this story that he was telling us. And so at the time, you know, he used all the church speak, like, oh, you know tone fluctuation and all of that kind of stuff that people do to manipulate in the church, whether they believe that they're manipulating or not, like that's, uh, that's what they're doing, you know? And so anyways, it was this weird, um, situation that we go through, uh, with Elder Miskin. And so we do that and then um we find out about this meeting from other people because we're not in that other ward people are like did you hear what happened like and this is a this neighboring ward. ward to yours yeah. um it's it's a couple wards away it was in the did, same state though at the time so does the whole family move or does the kid just start attending there with a another uh, member of the family i mean go ahead. 
Yeah, well, it's it's also part of the pressure that we received is like he had two siblings, um, one that was away at BYU and one that was like a senior. Um, and, um, you know, the question was like, okay, well, is it okay if they still attend? And like that was given to us, which is a weird situation anyways. Um, but they're like, you know, it's really hard for them. All their friends are here. They didn't do anything. And at first we're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really see an issue with that. But then what starts happening is in the hallways, in testimony meeting, people get up and speak directly to them and say Speaking like directly so, to the older yeah. siblings. Older of the siblings. We feel so so bad for them that people like yeah. you have to go through this and like and they, so, even those kids would get up in testimony meeting and talk about how hard it is like for their family, like the things people are being mean to their family and stuff. So you guys like, get publicly painted as the bad guys, basically. Yes. Yes, but in the hallways, like lot, just lots and lots of stuff, like where every, almost every week that we're at church, something comes up around it. Or someone says something down to our kids. Yeah, and so it's just... Was, yeah, he was the principal of our kids' high school. See, that's another, another little twist is that the bishopric member, who's the father of the 12-year-old, is also the principal he was, of the high he school, was you said? our kids at school, yeah. Yeah, your older kids, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 So we yeah, we have two older kids that yeah, he's cool. He's given the stink eye, like he's um he's very dramatic. Dramatic. And so he would be like, ah, you know, like As that I'd walk into school. I, it was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the funny thing is, like, we already knew that about him. Like he was already that way around us like, he would, like call us and be like um it's really weird he's like staring at us as we're walking into school like you know like it's weird it was weird so you've got Let's no trouble envisioning up. exactly what that looks like because you've been on the receiving end yeah. of it. yes yes and so so anyways that being said like um what one of the things that ends up happening because he's giving our kids so much crap at school and it happened like for a few months. Yeah, for a few months. And it was super uncomfortable for them. So we finally, and in the meantime, they were sending us letters, um, like, or emails. The perpetrator's family was telling us, sending us letters and emails, talking about how we should forgive with, like, general conference quotes and stuff in the mail and email. Oh, they general conferenced you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, the, and then in those letters, they'd say things to the effect of, like, um like uh your daughter will because she was so young she'll never know what actually happened so like why, so why are we making this a big deal yeah and so i will tell you uh just to throw in here uh i, I know we're going to get to the story eventually <laughs> the one we're laboring toward right but all this other information is great too but I, I knew somebody, who, a woman, who when they were uh, young was a victim of sexual abuse by an older family member and kept it secret. Of course, it's the secret that can't be talked about. And then much, much, much later, she starts bringing it up and saying, we've got to deal with this. And 
she got the general conference talk sent to her by the alleged perpetrator, you know, and I yes. remember Thomas S. Monson and the story about the wedge, the ax wedge that was left yeah. in the tree and the tree grew, grew around it, right? And then the wind yeah. blew and it split the tree in half right where the wedge had been left. And we need to not leave those wedges in trees, which gets interpreted to mean we need to forgive people who have offended us. And move on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, that <laughs> that that tells the whole story. So he did eventually get released from his principal position. Yeah. So because what we did is after they sent us four or five of those letters, something like that, um, we took that to the district and we're like, hey, you guys need to do something about this. At least tell him to stay away from our kids. Like. And then three days before the school year started, um, they moved him position. Like so he's position. Yeah. So he wasn't at the, that school. And so anyways, he, yeah, he got promoted slash demoted. I don't know. But the kids in our ward, like Transferred. lots of them go to that school. And so my kids would comments, oh, it's too bad. Like he's not so principal, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, it was, it was not fun. So anyways, so that's what's kind of gone on for them. And then in the, in the next little bit, they have this meeting at the new congregation because people are upset that he's moved over there permanently. Right. And now we're going back in time in the narrative to March or early this, April of 2021. Uh, so it was actually like it was like it was fall of 21. It was probably September um, when they finally moved the records, all moved the records over to this new ward. But he had been attending telling, since March. At the new I ward. No, I think that he did a lot of Zoom attendance before. He, he wasn't at your ward. ward. He so wasn't at your ward. Was, yeah, right. I don't know. Right. Okay. So, and now as all of this is going down, and let's call it September, um, his dad, um, in this third hour meeting, we've got the area authority, the stake presidency, not just the stake president, the stake oh. presidency. Um, the bishopric. So all the local leaders that could be there were there standing. In just a regular like Sunday school, third hour sort of meeting. And so everybody, allowed... by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is to say something that you already know, and but that some members of the audience may not know, is that church used to be three hours. And what usually used to happen was that uh, there was something planned on the third hour. It's usually Relief Society and Priesthood where you split up and you go and you have your your different classes. But there are certain months that have five Sundays in it. Was this a fifth Sunday? I don't know. But This might have been just a second hour. I think it was already two-hour church by then. Yeah, But it was it's combined, second, right? Just right. second hour, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was combined, men and women. Yeah. So in other words, you have a meeting which you get all everybody there, at least all, all the adults, yeah. present in the same room when you want to say something that's important and you want to make sure that everybody hears it's not just told to the men's group or to the women's group we're going to bring them all together we've got the stake president c stake president his two counselors we've got the bishopric which is the bishop and his two counselors we've got uh the area authority 70 who you said was rosa by this time correct yep yep all right so what and do you he, hear? You know, and so for back. area authority, like he's over twenty-seven stakes. So whatever twenty-seven times ten, you know, it's probably two hundred, three hundred congregations that he's over. 
you right. know? So, I mean, that's... Like, it's pretty odd to make a whole meeting for him to come and to give the per per perpetrator's dad a chance to give his story. Like, have you ever heard of that? Like, giving Well, a... no, I never have. I just no, have one other weird. technical question. The perpetrator's dad was a member of the bishopric in your ward. Did he remain in your ward as a member of the bishopric and attending there, or did he go to the new ward as well? Eventually, he moved to the new ward. By this time, had he? Yeah. Okay. So tell us about this meeting. Yeah, so the meeting, um, they have Dad get up and share his story um, of what had gone on with this child. And uh, basically, Dad got up and said, hey, I know that there's a lot of misinformation out there surrounding this. And so just wanted to get up and tell everybody what's gone on. And um, we have done everything right. Like in this scenario, um, our, our son um, has made some mistakes, um, but is repentant for those and is doing everything um, that the church has asked him and that law, the law enforcement have asked him to do. Um, all he uh, is being prosecuted for, or like so, something along those lines prosecuted for is for touching a girl on her chest and her bottom. And so like that was, that was it. Like he, he'd minimized what the abuse was. He didn't talk about the multiple victims. He didn't like go into detail. He didn't talk about, um, you know, the, the first victim had some very egregious abuse, abuse. Um, now, technically, he only got charged for one victim. They wouldn't charge him for the toddlers. Yeah, and so... Or for the seven-year-old. Yeah. So he only got prosecuted for the seven-year-old because yeah. the younger victims could not corroborate. Yeah, they, right. Um, and so that being said, um, I call... I hear about this from somebody else. And then... I call up the stake president. I'm like, hey, what the hell? Like, what did you guys do? And I said, I heard this. And he's like, well, yeah, that, yeah, that's what happened. And it's like, how in the world could you do that? Like, how does that make any sense? Like, you guys are trying to make everybody feel warm and fuzzy, but like, you're not giving us an audience, right? Like, you're not giving anybody else an opportunity to talk about what's actually happened. Like, I'm more than happy to share all of the dirty details um, that we know about this information. Well, it's just so inappropriate to have that meeting. Like, I've never heard of anyone giving a forum during the... Yeah, to an abuser's, like, to an abuser's parent to diminish the abuse. Like, like a whole meeting during church? Like, doesn't make any sense. So that well, everybody... You're talking to all the parents. I mean, that's what it's about, right? We're bringing yes. all the moms and dads in. And there yeah. are some probably who don't have young kids, but we got to get them all. We're going to get them all in this meeting and we're going to let them know that they don't have to worry about this kid because everything's okay. And he's taking care of everything he's supposed to do by the church and by the law. And he's repenting. So don't worry about your kids. Everything's fine. Yeah. And to have a, an authority there, like it just makes it seem like it's totally legitimate. I feel like, like, all right. Right. <laughs> and so the goal of the church in this was to diminish the abuse. Like that was the goal. And like one cannot help but feel like obviously these parents of the victims are unreasonable 
if this whole panel of people is getting up and standing behind the victim or the perpetrator's father uh, to support what he has to say. Like, obviously, it's us. Obviously, we're the crazy ones, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, is that empathetic to victims of abuse? Is that, like, you know, the prophet talks about how, you know, the the main goal is to make sure that people are protected and that, you know, uh, they loved the victims and all of this stuff. That's not what any of that was about. Like, and so the, you know, this narrative, like that they get it, that they love us and they're doing everything and they use best practices and blah, blah, blah. All of that. Gold not standard, true. Jared. They got the gold standard. And, you know, and it's, it is so sad because to me, like, one of the things that's super frustrating to me, Ashley and I, um, uh, like I resigned my membership, so I'm no longer a member of the church. When um, Ashley is, um, but no longer attends. And when did you resign? Uh, April of this last year, I believe. Is that this last year? Are you 2023 uh, or 2023? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. So 2023, yep. and mm -hmm. did you stop going around the same time, Ashley? Um, it was a few months after that. Yeah. Was it all a direct result of how the leadership treated you in this situation and for me, how they treated me, the yes. situation as well? Yes. What? Uh, for me, mostly. No, okay. I, I think that there's more context and texture to that that I think that she should share relative to she she felt abused by the leaders, but. Um, we went to our new ward and there were new developments there. Well, so we moved to a new ward, um, you know, like a two wards away, like 15 minutes away in, in a different, at the time it was a different stake. And after a few months, um, like another kid in the ward told one of our children that there was an abuser in that ward. And he told, he told her a name of a brother in the ward, a middle-aged guy who um, usually would sit in front of us and would always try to chat with our daughter, the one who'd been abused. Like, and he'd always be having kids on his lap, very chummy with all the parents. And he's like, yeah, this guy, like he was Bishop and then he wasn't Bishop, I guess a few years ago. And so we um, kind of pissed off. So Jared, I don't know, maybe you called the Bishop. I did. I was like, hey, like what the hell's going on? Like, you didn't tell us this. <laughs> And so the bishop came to our house to talk to us about it and corroborated the information that we had found out. He's like, I'm sorry, I should have told you since you came out of the sweet kind. I mean, and he's a nice guy, but I'm like, yeah, no shit. Like, yes, you should have told us. Like, like we literally move into a new ward because of this and they already got a creeper talking to my daughter again. Like, but here's the problem that developed out of that situation. And that is like, this guy has annotated records. So when the abuse was found out about, um, it had not been prosecuted, um, but it was family members of his from out of state. And they found out that he became bishop. So they called the stake president right away. And they're like, hey, 
this is not okay. This guy's a sexual abuser. So this is before, like a few years before we moved into their ward, but it had happened. And it's a good right. thing the family and... members who knew what was going on with this cat yeah. were able to help the state president out with his spirit of discernment, which obviously yeah. was failing <laughs> at that time. Yeah, for sure. And so, so then they release him right away. Like it's a super quick release. Well, um, we didn't know about this because it's been a few years be yeah. prior before we even knew these people. And so after that happens they annotate his records and he's not allowed to work with youth anymore. Cool, except for the only people that know about annotated records are in leadership. So the same day, the day, the day after I found this out, I, so I play the, I play the piano in primary. This guy was substituting leading the music in primary. And so I'm thinking like, if, like if you're a primary teacher and you ask someone to substitute for you, you don't ask if their records are annotated, right? Like, Anyone could easily have. You're just glad if you can practice. find somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. I'm sure he had substituted in class. He drove youth to activities because no one knows, except for the bishop, you know? Right. And that is not a functioning system to no, protect it happens. people. We found, we've heard so many stories about this happening now in every ward, basically, in our stake. So the yeah, annotations so really don't amount to much, except unless it's an official calling that goes right through the bishop. And the bishop looks at his record, sees the annotation, and says, oh, he can't have this calling as a young men's president or something like that. And he's in the elders' quorum presidency. Yeah. Yeah, so he's now in the elders' so quorum presidency. anything suspicious. <laughs> right. So on the one side, the bishop's thinking, okay, he's with the elders, who are, of course, adults. So there's no problems with kids in the elders' quorum. But you don't have to think about it too long to realize that you've given this man the stature of being in the elders quorum presidency, which adds, I mean, we all trust other members just because they're members of the church. That's how we operate as Mormons. That's why we get taken so often by other Mormons. But then when you give an average member a position of leadership, now that trust goes up amongst the other members. Well, and so there's that case that happened in Michigan a couple of years ago. Um, where the sexual abuser became the elders quorum president. Yep. And then and what the state president and bishop knew about that. Right. But what they weren't thinking about is like, well, hey, this guy is going to be taking around young men as his ministering companion, you know? And right. So, the ironic priesthood is going to be what splitting with the elders to do the, I guess this ministering yep. now used to be home teaching, very common practice. Yep. Yeah. And so like they're not they're not thinking about that. And here's the thing. Like with a multi 100 billion dollar organization, I do not give them any passes. Like now I look at this and I'm like, okay, and when people say to me like, well what could they have done to prevent abuse? And it's like, I don't know. What's the policy at a freaking children's school? Like what do they do? Like, how do they prevent this stuff? And then when something comes forward, what do they do to stop it? Because it doesn't look the same as religion, you know? And we would have no problem holding them accountable. And these are tiny little school districts, right? Like, definitely the church can put best practices in place to protect people. They choose not to. So they easily can make it so that the youth don't go out on splits. They can do that. Well, and how many mm -hmm. kids, how many teenage boys or whatever have been abusers and then go on missions, you yeah. know, and at people's houses? Well, my right. my abuser went on a mission 
two years after he abused me. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if this kid goes on a mission that yeah. <laughs> abuses uh, everybody. Hundred <laughs> percent. You know, and so like the policies can be put into place. What people ask me all the time, like, why do you think that the church, like, what's their incentive, you know, to to hide this, to tell to tell a lie? Like, you think it's just because they don't want to lose the money? And I don't think it's that simple. I do think that they care about their money. Like, by the way, if somebody steals money from the church, um, they aren't coming back. Right. Like, and they're excommunicated right away. Like you do not mess with the church's money. However, right. um, I think that there's multiple facets that really inform what the church does here. Um, and I think to your point earlier, that discernment is a major factor on this. They need in order to hold the position that they do in their members' minds they need to be able to show that they have access to information that you do not. Like, it is important that the bishop has discernment. It is important that the stake president has discernment. The other thing is, like, if they don't have the ability to forgive, what's their value, right? Like, so... If this perpetrator can't be forgiven of his sins, how can you be forgiven of yours through the church and made whole? Like, so I think that that's also very important that they hold up this thing. It doesn't matter what you have done. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. And that is the value proposition of the church. And so in as much as they don't have that power, then what is this all for? I want to tell you what I find the most troubling about this uh, episode that you're involved in and still living with um, that has a lot of troubling aspects to it, but the most troubling thing to me. And then I want to ask both of you about the fact, as I understand it, that in August of this year, 2023, that the church was added as a defendant to this lawsuit and why that was. And then we'll close off. But so that'll be your chance to give any closing statements you you have. But very briefly, the thing that I find the most disturbing about this is that we have a young individual, and his age really isn't that important. But he's a 12-year-old, going to be 13, 14, etc., who has an established track record showing that he has issues and that he victimizes other children. So he's done it here in your ward. You refuse to allow it to be put under the carpet, to be buried, to be hidden. And because of that, the leadership feels they have to do something, but the something that they decide that they have to do is to take this offender and move him to another ward that has all these new potential victims in it. And I can't help but think about the famous issues with the Catholic Church and their priests who would, some of whom would be found to be abusing children. And their solution was, well, we'll get them out of there. We'll just move them to another church, another parish. And the abuse would continue. It's almost like, well, if it's out of my sight, then it's not happening. Once again, this idea of appearance over substance, of looking like everything's okay versus actually addressing issues. So that's what I find 
to be the most troubling. And your thoughts on that, and then your thoughts about why it was that the church got added as a defendant to this lawsuit in August. Yeah, I mean, the appearance over substance is my experience with the church in general. And that was what the unraveling for me of my faith was, is starting to discover the narratives that they sell versus what reality is. So that being said, um, you know, I don't, I feel empathy for many of the players in this situation. Um, I've done business with multiple of them. Like um, we've had them to our house and social things throughout our life. I don't assign all things nefarious to these people. But I also think that the church's system is set up in a way that allows good people to do bad things, good people to make decisions that otherwise in any other context they would not make. Um, and I talked about this when we were on Mormon Stories, like when my dad found out that I had been abused, if it was by a baseball coach, I think he would have literally beat the guy up or killed him or whatever. But since it was from a kid that was about to leave on his mission and Bishop had already determined that everything was all right, like in that we needed to forgive or whatever that was, like, or that his penance was just approaching my dad in the hallway, that obviously that was right. And so th that therein lies the endemic issue <laughs> that's plaguing our church, you know? And so, I do think that that's, that's the major issue that we see here is they want to put on these appearances of everything can be okay, everything is okay, continue to come to church and receive God. Um, so, and by the way, give us your money too. We want that. So, uh, but so to the question of the lawsuit, like how the church got named, first of all, Originally, when we filed this lawsuit, Ashley and I were both in the church, and I remember clearly having the conversation with Ashley that I felt like we should add the church, but if we did, that it would likely be our undoing with the church, like that we would not be able to recover from that spiritually, like because we couldn't be enemies with God, essentially. Like that was, that's where my head was at. Because we knew they would try to bash us then that wouldn't work out well. Yeah, and so so understanding that, like, as I finally start continuing through my faith deconstruction, I became, I got to a point where it's like, hey, I don't care, I'll sue them. Like, that has nothing to do with anything now. Like, they're just an institution. Um, And then, you know, we had talked to our attorney about it a couple times and he's like, oh, I don't know, like there's a lot of nuance to this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then we take the depositions of the stake president and the bishop. And after that, my attorney called me up and he's like, hey, uh, yes, you are right. We do need to add these people. The stuff they said was very not good for them. Yeah, well, and also- A lot of stuff that they- yeah, well, one of the things that they brought up multiple times in their deposition 
uh, surrounding like youth protection training. And they're like, well, you know, we really don't have uh, policies um, for this or for that. They're like, but uh, they said like three or four times um, they brought up the Boy Scout training. <laughs> And the attorney's like, hey, do you know that the Boy Scouts don't do very good in this either? Like, like yeah, <laughs> like the, but basically just talking about um, the lack of policy and procedure to protect people from future victimization. Um, and, you know, and ultimately our goal in this lawsuit is to inform change. And we realize, like, we are not, we're not so arrogant to think that any lawsuit that we're going to bring against the church is going to change everything. We don't think that. But we do think that we will be a proverbial drop in the bucket, but eventually the bucket will overflow. And that's what needs to happen. Like, change needs to happen. When I look back, I, like, I am emotional about the perspective that if things were different, like seven-year-old Jared would have at least known that what happened was wrong, right? Like what happened to me was wrong. And my perpetrator did need to suffer consequences that didn't just come from God. He needed to go to jail, right? He was 17, I was seven. And there is protection that the church is in like it is incumbent upon them to take care of their people and they are not doing it they are protecting themselves and they are protecting the narrative that they want to sell that's what they are doing and so it needs to change and so the lawsuit involving the church yes they do not have best practices they do not have any gold standard they're so full of shit when it comes to that that's not even close um and so they need to change and the only way that they will change is through embarrassment is through litigation um and one of the things that we saw um i think it was with the michael jensen lawsuit um is like that intake form um that kieran mcconkey had you know that that showed like all the pieces of liability that they're trying to avoid like did it happen at church you know, right. was it from a preacher or, I mean, mm -hmm. a bishop or whatever, you know? And so each lawsuit that happens against the church, there's a probability that somebody Fs up and there's another little piece of information that comes out. Great. Super awesome. Like, those are the things that we're pushing towards. We want change. We don't want money. We want change. We understand that money has to be involved in order for our attorney to pick it up. We understand that money has to be involved so that there's notice that's taken. Um, but ultimately, we are advocating for change in the church. And they can call it revelation if they want. I don't care. All I care is that they do better. They need to do better. Got it. Very good summation, Jared. Anything you want to add in closing, Ashley? Um, no, I think, I think that's good. All right. Well, thank you. I do think that um, there is a cumulative effect to these different lawsuits that are coming out. They're being made public. They're being 
published about their being podcasted about word is getting out that the church definitely has a huge problem on their hands and it's a huge problem that they can't get away with by just saying oh we have the gold standard in protecting children from abuse at the church because we find out that that is not just a lie that is a whopper of a lie so I want to thank you both for coming on the show and sharing your story. Hopefully the uh, sharing of it here at Radio Free Mormon will get the word out to more people. And you're right. The only time the church changes is A, when it costs them money, or B, when it's embarrassing to them. And actually, it's the embarrassment, I think, that really controls them because they got tons of money to pay out. It's the embarrassment. And they should be embarrassed. They should be called to account for how they are not protecting children. And then when they are called on it at a local level like you did, the change they do is simply to endanger a bunch of other children in a different ward. And that's how we're going to protect the children by moving the perpetrator over to a different ward where he can go to church. So thank you very much for bringing this on. Everybody, please hit like, please hit subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what you think about this lawsuit and about the church and how it treats its young people and how it protects its young people. So that is, I'll take you off the screen now. If you hang on a second, I'll talk to you a little bit later. Don't go anywhere, okay? I know you're having a lot of fun there in the parking lot. Have you actually been holding that camera this whole time, Jared? <laughs> yeah, I've been resting it on my knee, so. I hope so, because Good. you gotta have pretty sore shoulder by this point okay I'll be, I'll be with you here in a second i'll just close out the show okay talk to you soon thanks so much for coming on the show yeah yeah okay once again this is radio free mormon that is about all for tonight please hit like please hit subscribe and i will see you next time this is radio free mormon signing off the air <laughs>